young, I was a bit naive, and you probably were too at some point, and uh, I looked at life through a rose-colored lens, right? The clouds were cotton candy, the sun was a lollipop. I'm kind of exaggerating, that's not exactly true, but uh, in a sense, that's the way I looked at life, and I liked the world that I created in my mind. There was something comforting about it. And then came the moment when I realized a little bit of what the world was really like. Do you remember that? I was dying. (laughs) I could die at any moment. People around me, my relatives, my friends, they could die. My sin was much deeper than I ever realized it could possibly be. And I didn't even scratch the surface yet. And sin in the world was much deeper than I could ever have fathomed. My desire was destructive. It was haywire. And I couldn't even get it fulfilled, right? People were hurting each other. The world was a, a, a massive, a massive, painful <laughs> grouping of people together in one sense. Real life was something I did not want to believe was real. Let's face it, living in this world can really be terrifying. This world is a terrifying place to be in. And how little do we have control of our lives? You can eat perfectly your whole life and then an asteroid could come and kill you. That's a far out example, but you know what I mean. Sickness, we can't see it. It's all around. It's invisible. It can kill us. We are not ultimately in charge of things. And how little do we take that into account? Do we think about that? And so the response of the nations, if you remember last week, was terror and fear. The first seven verses of chapter 41 in Isaiah talk about the response of the nations. Remember God was using the example of Cyrus? Many, many years before Cyrus even came into the scene, God says, a man is going to come, and he is going to be victorious and powerful, and people will not be able to stand against him. And what did the nations do? They were terrified. They were afraid. And ultimately, they were terrified and afraid of God. (laughs) And that was verses 2 through 4. God was behind all of this. And to be afraid of Cyrus, to be afraid of this conquering king, was to be terrified of God. And the answer the world has for this fear is to do what? What was the answer? What did the world do? Did they do something that was somewhat legitimate? Did they have a good idea of how to fix the problem? They created idols. How ridiculous is that? (laughs) There's nothing more foolish than that. They tried to escape. They tried to um, maybe deaden Their senses. They tried to in some way or some other find protective covering under man-made created things from this God that they're in rebellion against. How foolish are we? But God says this to his people. And this is what we're looking at today. God says this. For us, it is to be different. We are not to fear. 
Isn't that good news today? We are not to fear. And so you ask, why in the world should we not fear? And the answer is this. Because the supreme God who is directing all of history is working for your good and for his glory. Think about that. The supreme God who is Lord over all of history is working for your good and for his glory. Therefore, do not fear. Don't create idols to protect yourself. You know, and really, exhibit A is Cyrus, isn't it? God is going to raise up Cyrus. He's going to bring terror to the nations. But guess what he's going to do? He's going to unknowingly be the answer to God's promise in delivering his people from exile. What an amazing, amazing testimony to the grace of God and how he cares for his people. So God's message for you today is don't fear. If you're God's child, if you're a believer today, if you're trusting in Jesus, if your hope is in him, don't fear. God wants to reassure his church that he is guiding all of history for your good and for his glory. So what is the foundational reason? That's, that's where we begin today. What is the foundational reason for why you, believers, should not fear? And the basis for why you should not fear is your relationship with God. Because you, believer, are God's chosen servant. We see this in verses 8 through 9. Don't fear like the nations, believer, because you are God's servant. And I want you to notice in verse 8 the word, but you. It says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And then in verse 9 he says, you are my servant, again. But I want you to notice the but you. And that's actually a significant word. And sometimes when we're looking at these passages, we can miss these important words. And I don't want you to miss this. What we're seeing here is a contrast. God is giving us a contrast. The nations are terrified and fearful, right? But you, but you, God's children, God's people, are not to be afraid. The nations are in terror because they know there's a God and they know they're in rebellion against him. And so they have to fix their situation. But you, says God, you are different. And so, what does it mean to be a servant of God? What does it mean to be God's servant? And how would this alleviate our fear? And I want us to think differently. When we hear the word servant or slave, we often think from our own perspective of the history that we've had. But I want us to think a little differently here. I want us to hear how the Bible talks about being a servant of God. Being a servant of the Lord is not primarily about a role or an action that you take. But rather, it's primarily about your identity. Being a servant of the Lord means that the Lord is your master. That you are his property. That he owns you. You belong to him. This means that he is responsible for you. God is responsible for you. He owns you. And that God is going to take care of his property. I don't usually think of it that way. 
But I want you to understand at the very heart of being a slave or a servant of God means that you belong to God. You're his property. He owns you. And I think Psalm 132, verse 2, reflects what this means very well. Listen to these words. And notice how the psalmist understands what it means to be a servant or a slave. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. And this does not mean that God is not committed to making you act like a servant. Because he absolutely is. It's just not the primary point here. You know, if someone claimed to be a servant of God but didn't act like it, I would highly doubt their claims. But God will make a servant out of his servants. He will make them into servants. And he's committed to that. In fact, in this very passage, we will see that God is going to take, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, Take his worm, and he's going to make his worm into a threshing sledge to do his will and to do his purpose. So he is, yes, going to make them into his servants, to act like servants. But here, first and foremost, it's your identity. And when I think about what this looks like, I think of Isaiah in chapter 6. Remember, he said, here am I, send me. He says, I am your servant. I'm going to do your will, Lord. And really, what else would he say at that point? But I want you to understand that he was already a servant before he said that. His heart was already changed. His identity was already, I am a servant of God, because God had changed his heart. And then he acted like it. And he said, here am I, send me. So being a servant of the Lord is not a negative thing, as we often imagine slavery to be but rather it's a positive thing. You see, slavery has to do with having no rights, having no position, belonging to a master. But for God, when we are servants of God, we are free as we could possibly be. We are free to become who we were created to be. In fact, we become fully human, you might say, only when we are servants of God. Only when we take our right position before God do we live as we were created to live. You know, I think of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And one of my favorite passages. And she wants Jesus to cast out the demon from her daughter. And Jesus doesn't listen to her. She keeps calling out and calling out. And Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus calls her a dog. But do you remember what she said? Yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She says, I am more than willing to be a dog if I'm a dog at your table. You see, we are to take the position that God created us to be. We are slaves. We are servants of God. That's who we are supposed to be. I am happy to be a dog at the master's table. God's people are still God's servants, even when they don't feel like it at times, even when they don't act like it at times, right? We are still God's servants if we are trusting in him. 
a servant is how many of the New Testament author, authors re, re, referred to themselves as. They said, I'm a servant of God, I'm a servant of God, I'm a servant of God. And really, this is primarily who you are, believer. If you're a believer, you are primarily more than anything else, you're a servant of God. That's your identity. And therefore, being God's servant should remove all fear. You see, being owned by the Lord means that the Lord is going to take care of you. It means that you are under his special protection. One of the commentators, Modier, says this, and I want you to hear this. Such a slave as a matter of social status may have been at the bottom of life's heap. But in another sense, he was as powerful as his master. For should he ever have been molested, it was the master the molester had to reckon with. A servant is as powerful as their master. In the sense that if the servant is kicked, (laughs) they're going to have to deal with the master of that servant. So the question is, how do you become God's servant? Are you a servant of God because you're a better candidate? Are you a servant of God because you're better than someone else? It says here you're a servant of God because he chose you to be a servant. And we see this in verses 8 through 9. Listen to these words. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners. And then he says, I have chosen you and not cast you off. So the basis for being a servant of God, the very foundation of why you are a servant of God today is because God chose you. And I'm not denying, and be, be, be careful with this, I'm not denying that there must come a place, if you're to be saved, there must come a place where you must believe and repent and turn to Christ. And you must uh, serve God. Absolutely. You, you, you must, uh, you, you might even say choose God and desire Him and pursue Him. Absolutely. I'm not denying that for one minute. That is absolutely necessary to be saved. But I am saying that underneath all of this, the very foundational reason is not your choice, but God's choice. He is the first chooser, and everything else is the result of Him. So why did God choose you? Not because you were more compelling than anyone else. Not because you had earned it. Not because you had prayed more than anyone else or done anything better than someone. His choice is based solely on His mysterious will. And I would add to that His gracious, mysterious will. His kind and gracious will. You might say Abraham serves as a prototype. He was the first, in a sense, of Israel chosen by God. And you might say that Jacob is a paradigm. He is a picture to help us understand God's purpose in choosing and how he chooses. In Romans chapter 9, Paul uses Jacob to show us how God chooses and elects to salvation. Notice the pains God goes through to show us how he works through election. Jacob and Esau were both twins, weren't they? Jacob and Esau were both twins. They came from the same parents. They were born at relatively the same time. In fact, Esau was born a little ahead of Jacob. Just a tiny bit. And it says that before they had done good or bad, God chose Jacob rather than Esau. 
God graciously and mercifully chose Jacob rather than Esau. Jacob did not pray more. He did not clean his room better. He did not pray better. And Romans 9 tells us why he did it this way. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God is saying, I'm choosing Jacob and his descendants in this way to make it absolutely clear that it's not based on Jacob, but my own gracious and merciful decision. What grace, what mercy does God show? And this fact for how God elects and chooses should remove all fear. This is the greatest grounds for fearlessness. You can't get any greater argument for why we should be fearless people. You see, this means that nothing can take you away from being God's servant any more than you could not have made yourself a servant of God in the first place. You can't lose your standing any more than you can create it. The foundation of your relationship with God is not you, but God. God will protect you. Your eternal safety is in the hands of God. What awesome, what awesome news today, believers. What fearlessness does this create in God's people? You need to understand this, church. You need to get this. So how should being God's chosen, chosen servant remove our fears? Well, 10 through 20 explains how your relationship with God as a servant of him should remove your fears. Now, God could have just said, as my servant, don't fear. <laughs> you are my servant. I chose you. Don't fear. But he doesn't, does he? He doesn't say that. He argues and, and spends this extensive amount of energy giving us reasons why you should not fear. And therefore, I want to help you to not fear today. I want to give you argument upon argument upon argument to help the church to not fear and to trust in God. So don't fear because God is with you and he is for you. Verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God says, I am with you. Therefore, he throws all these similar terms out. Did you notice this? I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says, I want you to know beyond any doubt, believer, that I am for you. 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 Not only am I with you, but I am for you. And you can't miss it. You can't miss it. Do not fear, because God will conquer your enemies for you. Verses 11 through 13. And it says here in these verses that the nations are incensed against you. They're angry at God's people. Right? We know that's true, isn't it? We look at Israel's history, and we see that the nations were constantly at odds with God's people. They were enraged at God's people. But my question for you, is that true of us? Are the nations really enraged against us? Well, Jesus said they would be in John 15, verse 20. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Did they persecute Jesus? Yes, they did. They were angry at Jesus. There's a connection between you and Jesus. 
And it goes both ways, doesn't it? When they persecute you, they are persecuting Jesus. And when they persecuted Jesus, they will also persecute you. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says this, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And once again, we see the connection between God and his people. The nations are angry at you because they're angry at God. They do not love your God. The Bible says that the, that the, the world is at odds with God. And therefore, it can be very scary to be living in this world, can't it? Can it be scary to be in this world when you know that the world is angry at you? And we can seem very small. And the only thing that can really drive out this fear is if you know that God will defeat them. And that's exactly what it says here, doesn't it? It says God will defeat them. The piling of words here emphasizes that God will defeat all opposition. Listen to these words. He will put them to shame. He will confound them. He will bring them to nothing. They shall perish. No one will be able to find them. And this is incredible poetry here. And almost every argument, they're trying to emphasize something. And here they're emphasizing that God will completely defeat all your enemies who are standing against you. And the reason not to fear is not only that God will defeat your enemies, but also that he's going to hold your hand while he's doing it. Did you hear that? God's going to hold your hand. Here it says that God will be not only with you, but holding your hand. And the image is amazing. Think about this. God, it's almost as if God, as, as Oswald said in his commentary, God is holding in his right hand a sword, this majestic and powerful sword. In his left hand, he's holding your right hand. And he's defeating his enemies for you. What an amazing picture. But that's what we see in verses 11 through 13. God is holding your hand and he's defeating your enemy. Isn't it often the case, have you found this to be true, that the trials in life actually bring you closer to God? Have you noticed that? John Patton was a missionary to the cannibals in the New Hebrides, islands in the 1800s. At one point, he was surrounded by angry natives. And he tried to escape by climbing up a tree. And he wrote this of the event. Listen to how he expresses his experience. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul. Then when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my, th- my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone, if it be to the glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? <laughs> Do you have such a friend? Well, if you are trusting and believing in Jesus, you do. You do. Do not fear because God will use you to conquer all your enemies. Verses 14 through 16. I want you to remember 
that God is speaking to his people in such a way to alleviate their fear. And I want us to look at how God describes his people here in such a way to alleviate their fear. Does God flatter them? Does God say, you can do it? Does he say, you're worth it? Does he say that? No. He calls them a worm. He calls his people a worm. Have you ever heard of such a technique as this? Have you ever heard of a counselor trying to help and soothe their counselees by calling them worm, a worm? Have you ever heard of a Sunday school teacher helping their little young kids understand what it means to have comfort from God by calling them a worm or describing them as a worm? But I would say that God is a pretty good counselor, isn't he? God is pretty good at counseling. He knows what he's doing. So what does it mean to be a worm? Have you ever held a worm before? (laughs) You probably have. If you haven't, you should. You might see a semblance to yourself when you do it. You might say, this is kind of like me. It doesn't have arms. It doesn't have legs. It doesn't have eyes. It doesn't have ears. It's really as helpless as anything you could ever imagine. There's nothing more helpless Nothing more insignificant, even slimy, and maybe that doesn't really connect. But all these things, it's the smallest, most helpless, most basic of all living creatures. The lowliest of all. Are you anything like a worm? Are you small? Are you helpless? Are you needy? In other words, are you adequate to serve God? Are you adequate to do the will of God that he has called you to do? The Bible says, in fact, you are very much like a worm. The Bible even describes us as wretches at odds with God. So how might this be a good counseling strategy? How might this take someone who is down in the dumps and bring them to a place of courage by calling them a worm? And I want to remind you that the only hope for God's people is that they turn their eyes off of themselves. Is that they see that they have no power, they have no strength, they have no ability to save themselves. The only hope they have is if they turn to God for salvation. Otherwise, there is no hope for their salvation. And the only way for God's people to look to God is is if they see that they need Him. Until you recognize you're a worm, there is no hope for you. (laughs) There is no hope for your salvation. Your greatest need is to look at the one who can save you and to realize you have no hope in yourself. You must recognize that you are lost before you can be saved. You must constantly recognize your own unworthiness as a believer if you are to keep close to your Savior as a believer. Do you realize that? You need to constantly recognize you're not coming to a point where you have finally arrived as a believer. That is not your goal. (laughs) That is not your purpose. You grow as you recognize that you need God more and more every day. And you rely and trust in Him more every day. That's growth. A pastor I listened to once said this, and I agree with him completely. That one of the greatest dangers facing the church today is the abandonment of worm theology. He said this, that we we have abandoned worm theology when we start taking words out of songs, like, that saved a wretch like me, 
and start saying that saved someone like me. Or when we say, alas, and did my Savior bleed for such a one as I, rather than for such a worm as I. We take these words out because they are offensive to us. But this is our only hope. This is our only hope that we don't abandon this. Some people actually don't go to church because they don't feel good about themselves. And so they leave. Can you imagine that? Every weekend and week out, they don't feel good about themselves when they hear the preaching. But if that is the way you feel, then you need to abandon Christianity. Because Christianity is not about you. It's about Christ. And it's about your need for him. The church is only doing its job when it says you are like a worm and you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to offer in regards to salvation. You need God. And that is what the gospel says. Anything else that attempts to build up the self-esteem of man in order to bring them salvation is not the gospel at all. It's not the gospel. It's something else. You are not worth it. (laughs) But God loves wretches. God loves sinners. God loves the unworthy. And he is able to save. But we see here is that God is going to do something incredibly great for the worm as his redeemer. And I want you to understand what the word redeemer means here. Redeemer is an incredibly significant word. We need to understand that God is our redeemer. And redeemer means to take um, someone who is part of your family, who is, who is impoverished and who is enslaved, and to buy them back, to purchase them, to deliver them from their slavery. And so they take their needs upon themselves. An example would be Boaz with Ruth. So what does God do as a redeemer here? It says that he turns the worm into a threshing sledge. (laughs) What in the world is a threshing sledge? Well, apparently, and none of us would probably know what that means otherwise, it's a huge frame of metal or wood with pieces of metal or stone stuck to its underside. And it's used to drag around over and over again a pile of, of grain in order to separate the kernels from the husks or the wheat from the chaff. So the question is, what is God doing with a threshing sledge? (laughs) What is he doing? Why is he making this worm into a threshing sledge? And the answer is, he is doing this so that she, the worm, would become a powerful, mighty weapon in God's hands. God is making her into this powerful weapon. What an amazing thought, this massive worm machine in order to defeat their enemies. And notice the wording here tells us how great this war machine is going to, what, what, the, the greatness of what this war machine will accomplish. In this um, description of mountains, she shall thresh the mountains. The mountains are talking about huge obstacles that would otherwise be impossible to overcome. God transforms his worm into a mountain killer <laughs> who overcomes impossible barriers and obstacles. So why does God do it this way? Why does God do this by turning his worm into a threshing sledge? You know, God could have squished his enemies, couldn't he have? He could have put the squash on his enemies himself. But instead, he has decided to take a worm, an unworthy worm, and and, and, and transform them into this powerful weapon to defeat the enemies. And doesn't this Show the greatness and the power of God that you could never see otherwise. 
It's not about the worm, is it? It's about God, and it's very obvious. This is exactly the reasoning Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28 through 31. Why God chooses worms such as you and I. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul said another way in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And we know that ultimately God's mysterious will here is fulfilled in the gospel, isn't it? God takes on flesh and defeats our enemies in our place for us. And we know that he is creating us into a people who reflect his image as we were created to do. Romans 8 verse 37 says this, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What an awesome thought. More than conquerors. So what is the purpose of all this? Why does God do it this way? Listen to these words. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. God's got one ultimate supreme purpose in all that he does. And so that he will be glorified and that he will be honored. And when he does it this way, you can't miss where the glory belongs. That's why God does it this way. That's why God does things the way he does it. So that he will be praised and he will not share his glory with another. So finally, don't fear, though you are frail and needy and live in a cursed world, because God will recreate the world to provide for your needs. In verses 17 through 20. You see, we live not only in a world where there are enemies all around us, but also in a world that is cursed. Nothing provides for us what it's supposed to provide. Uh, it can be so scary living in this world because things are not the way they're supposed to be. We saw a picture of what God was going to do for his people, not only in the Garden of Eden, but also in the Promised Land, didn't we? God brought his people to a place of rich abundance, overflowing with water and great, great flourishing. Everything was great in the Promised Land. But because of their sin, just like the Garden of Eden, God turned the beautiful land into a cursed land. It no longer produced the water. It no longer gave them. And they were spit out of the land, weren't they? And brought into exile. And the language here is figurative language. Rather than literal. Portraying a people who are in great need. Who are powerless to save themselves. Like you and me. We are physically, emotionally, and spiritually needy people. We are poor, thirsty, and crushed under the burdens of life. We need God. And the psalmist is the greatest, one of the greatest examples of what this looks like. What it looks like to thirst after God. What it's talking about here is, is Psalm 63 verse 1. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. In a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. Notice the language of thirsting for God. Or Psalm 42. As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. In fact, one of the most dangerous conditions we could possibly be in is to be well off, is to be comfortable, is to be at ease. Because how often, how easily are we lured into believing that we are okay, that we are self-sufficient, that we don't need God? 
If we, lack, if we never lack money for anything, if we never hear a bad a diagnosis from a doctor, if we never are divided from our loved ones, how easy is it to think that we are okay, that we don't need God? What a dangerous place to be in. We need to be so alert and careful when things are okay for us. But God's people are those who are thirsty. God's people are those who are poor. God's people are those who are needy and broken. God's people realize that they need God and they need his gospel, that he is the answer. And therefore, we thirst for God and we need to pray, God, help me to thirst for you more. Salvation and this broken world are intended to cause us to thirst for God. So if you are thirsting, if you are hungering, if you're longing for God, you're in the right place. Things are working as they're supposed to. We're supposed to groan. We're we're supposed to long for God. Philippians 3, verse 7 through 11 describes this right place, doesn't it, for Paul. It says, I count all things lost for for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Jesus claimed to be the spring of water, the life, the source that we need. When he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And notice right here what happens. Super abundant water out of places that you would never expect from them to come out. Water just comes out of everywhere. And not only that, but and we don't understand this because we don't live in these areas, but shade, God provides shade for his people. What an awesome picture of what God does. So why might God care so much for people like you and I? Why does God provide for us? Why does he take care of us? Well, verse 20 tells us that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. We are to be a living testimony. God's grace, transforming grace in our lives, is to be a testimony to the world that we don't have an idol as a God. That we have a true and living God. And as God changes us, as God transforms us, yes, speak the gospel. We must speak the gospel. But also live it. Show forth the gospel. Show forth the power of God. Show forth that we have the supreme God by delighting and rejoicing and knowing our God and enjoying the salvation that he has brought to us. The wording here is to ponder. There's all these words that to think about, to ponder, to meditate on, all these words to consider. They're making a point that people should see it. And the word for creating here comes from Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. That God is recreating things making things new, so that they would see that this is God who is doing it. And God's work in his people should show that God is supreme. This means that God has a bigger purpose than just saving you. God saves you for your joy, your witness to the world, and for his glory. And by not fearing what the world fears, we glorify God. Did you know that? By not fearing what the world fears, we glorify God and we say that he is the supreme God. By positively praising God, you are proclaiming that God is true. You are bearing witness to the reality that God is true. By delighting in God and his promises, you are saying that God is supreme. Are you saying with your life that God is supreme today? Is that the trajectory of your life? Are you a repentant person, turning to God, looking to him? We should be repentant people. It is good to be repentant. It is good to be turning to God. Ask God, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation so that we might proclaim his praises. And in Psalm 51, that's exactly what David does, by the way. Now, I don't remember a lot from my early on years, 
But for some reason, I remember asking my dad if life was going to get a little easier. It might be my imagination. It might have been a dream, but I'm pretty sure I asked him that. And his answer was, no, it doesn't, son. (laughs) Thanks, dad. (laughs) You know, and I did feel a little crushed. And there's a sense to which he was right, but I don't think he understood what I was asking. In another sense, he could not be more wrong (laughs) in the sense that I'm thinking here. You see, the more I have learned about the gospel, the more I have found him more than adequate comfort for the terrifying world that is around me. And it has not merely equaled out the difficulties of this world, but it's infinitely greater than all the problems that the world throws against me. Isn't that awesome? And so really, as the world has gotten more, as I've seen the world to be more broken, as I've seen myself to be more broken, I've seen that there is a God who is more than adequate for all my needs. And he is mighty to save. So no, it doesn't get harder in that sense. The harder it gets, the bigger I see my God to be. And the more comfort I find in him. We must fight against fear by thinking of our God, who he is and what he has done in his promises. The Bible doesn't give us vague ideas. It doesn't try to make us feel better. It gives us concrete, objective truths to find comfort in. So the face, for the sake of your joy, your witness, and the glory of God, keep this word in your heart this week. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Dear Father, you are the supreme God. Lord, we thank you this morning for reminding us of who you are. Lord, your words are hard to grasp. Lord, they're just so good. And Lord, we want to understand uh, the greatness of all that you are. But Lord, our minds are so small. And Lord, we have so much trouble grasping just the, the greatness of your promises the greatness of what it means that you are for us and not against us. God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to delight in you, Jesus. Help us to glory in our God. Help us to boast in our God. Help us to see you and find comfort in a terrifying world and a God who is powerful to save. Lord, help us to rest in you. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for, such a, for being such a great savior and for bringing to us such a great salvation. I pray that if there's anyone in here who's not saved, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. You said if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I pray that you do a mighty work of salvation today. May no one leave being at odds with the living God outside of your favor. Lord, you are too good. You are too gracious. You are too kind to leave being an enemy of God. Lord, I pray that you would save today. Stir within our hearts, Lord, a hunger and a thirst for you. May we live this week as people who are thirsting and hungering after our God. May we look up to our God, who is our mighty Savior. We ask this for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.